I, I have a big vision of how I want things to work. I think we can have um, equity in our policing. We can have uh, accountability in our policing. Um, we can have services provided by uh, non-police officers that are more relevant to the needs of the community. Uh, we can have trust. We can rebuild that trust between the, the institutions of the city and, and the people in the city. We just have to want to build that trust instead of constantly sowing discord. Hey, this is Peter Marks. Welcome to Rhythm Nation. Today in the show, I have Veda Mazursky, who is running for Portland City Council, position number three. We have had two other candidates running for this, uh, Joanne Hardesty, the current holder of this office, as well as Renee Gonzalez. And this election is coming up in May of this year, 2022. And yeah, we're excited to hear all the different options that Portlanders will be able to vote on for their city leadership. And I really enjoyed this conversation with, with Vadim. Vadim has an interesting background as an immigrant and as a judge who brings a unique perspective to local city issues. Really excited to get his perspective on the show. Hope you enjoy it. But Dean, thank you for being on the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for making the time. And Peter, thank you for having me on the show. I look forward to chatting with you. Tell us a little bit about what has, has led you to run for the, the office and this, this background and experience you're bringing to this position. Well, so it, it actually starts from a long time ago. Uh, my family and I uh, came to the United States from the Soviet Union. We were refugees at, at that point in time. Um, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union and uh, my family uh, was able to escape that. It was one of the few ways that you could leave the country. And uh, we were stateless for some time, traveling around Europe, uh, finally got permission to come to the United States and uh, moved here. Didn't know the language very much. I was uh, thrown into school right away. Uh, and uh, yeah, the, the quintessential immigrant story that probably you and your friends and family you know, know so much about and other individuals, uh, whether through work, know a lot of immigrants probably, and uh, very much that same story. Uh, child of public schools, public university, public law school. Uh, and uh, finally, I uh, became a lawyer, worked a little bit in litigation, and then uh, decided to do something more productive with my life. And I started working for the U.S. government uh, at first with uh, Medicare, um, offering Medicare services to elderly individuals and people with disabilities as well. And then uh, currently working as an administrative judge with the uh, federal government for Social Security Administration. Uh, I came to Portland, uh, fell in love with the city, fell in love with the people, uh, fell in love with the music scene definitely here. That's one of the things that draws me here. I had lived in Austin before, and I really think that uh, Portland can give Austin a run for its money as a music capital. There's so much uh, diversity in music here and so many nice venues. Um, you know, Pickathon I've been to as well, camped out there. Anyways, a, a great region for that. Moved out here, decided to settle down. I've always been kind of a nomad moving around, um, and because of how much I enjoy the city, I decided this is gonna be the place to live. And part of that was getting involved in city government. I think it's important for everybody to know what their government is doing, how their money, their tax money is being spent, uh, whether it's being effective or not. So I, I've been uh, lucky enough to be on different committees and commissions for the government here. I've been appointed by city council to a police oversight agency. I've been appointed to the new charter reform commission to kind of reevaluate if our form of government is working for the people of Portland. 
and I, I kept seeing time and time again how people's voices were not being heard in City Hall, how uh, pragmatic, practical solutions were not being um, uh, were not were not being done in City Hall to actually alleviate some of the difficulties that people are having. And um, you know, especially right now, so many people I talk to are are very concerned about the humanitarian crisis that we have in the homeless community. They're very concerned about public safety. So many people have stories about their own interaction with uh, uh, individuals that have been threatening to them or their family, their own interactions with crime and how that seems to be getting worse here in Portland. So after having a lot of these conversations over the years, um, I decided to run for office because I do think we need a voice that brings people together and uh, has the vision and the long-term vision for Portland and the growth that we'll experience here in Portland, but also the ability to work with individuals from all walks of life and get the results that are needed to make life better for people. You talk about your vision. What what do you feel like is actually at stake um, for Portlanders, especially younger Portlanders in this election? Um, and what what is your vision? Well, Daniel, uh, the, it's a good question about what's at stake for young Portlanders because uh, uh, we, you've lived through so much uh, uh, time of turmoil, you know, especially over the last two years and, and certainly before that. Uh, the U.S. economy is all over the place. The pandemic, the job opportunities. Uh, being able to buy a house, being able to settle down, all these things that were taken for granted, you know, even 20 years ago are now a question mark for a lot of people. And so what we do now uh, to, to kind of set the foundation for the future growth of Portland is going to affect uh, younger individuals the most. We need to make sure that there's opportunities available, opportunities uh, in the job market, that we have uh, good businesses here that are paying a good wage so people can live in the areas that they want to. Uh, we need to ensure that there's good schools here so that when people form families and have kids, that their kids will be able to go to uh, schools and be educated and be able to succeed at universities and choose careers. Um, and we need to make sure that uh, Portland is safe. Um, what I, once again, hear from people uh, is that they're very concerned about their neighborhoods. They're very concerned about their kids being able to ride around and walk around in the streets. Uh, during the last budget meeting, so many people showed up, hundreds of people showed up in November to talk to City Hall. And um, one of the things that strikes me the most was a, a woman who testified that her nine-year-old child was walking to school with pepper spray because their neighborhood had become so unsafe over time. Those are the stories that we need to deal with right now so that that child feels safe going to school, so that those schools are doing well. And, and unfortunately, some of our schools are, are not doing well and, and we need to make sure that they get the resources that they need um, and, and that there's job opportunities. One of the repercussions of uh, some of the mismanagement that I think has happened in our city hall is that businesses are leaving and, and say what you will about businesses. And there's certainly some uh, divisiveness in city hall as to whether we need to uh, bring businesses or consult with businesses or business owners about uh, how to help the economy flourish in Portland. But we need that tax base. We need that tax base for the services. And we need to make sure that we have the innovators coming here, that we have small businesses that are flourishing here and small businesses that are able to pay their employees a living wage. Uh, and I think that's very important for a host of reasons. Portland's gotten so expensive, housing, rentals, um, uh, everything is just off the charts here in Portland, food prices. Uh, and the only way we can really combat that at this point in time is making sure that we have 
not uh, not not minimum wage businesses here, but thriving big businesses that can hire people and pay them the wage that they deserve. Do you feel like the city government right now is is rising to meet these challenges? And how would you how would you confront issues like job growth and making sure that people actually do end up with livable wages differently than than what's currently happening in our city government? Yeah, I, I don't think our government is being effective. And that's really the reason I'm running. Uh, time and time again, I see our, how our city hall is governing by philosophy rather than governing by um, any kind of evidence-based decision-making or planning for the future. And, and that has, uh, in, in good times, that might be okay when there's a lot of money coming in, when people are moving to Portland, uh, when we don't have a pandemic, when we don't have uh, a very high crime rate, that, that might be fine and, and you can, you can uh, govern that way. It might not be an effective way, but uh, it won't affect uh, as many people negatively. But right now what we're seeing is that, that governing by um, philosophy rather than uh, a practical approach to the difficulties that are facing everyday Portlanders is backfiring. Um, we're seeing, uh, unfortunately, a crisis of our own making. We knew that there's a housing crisis years ago, and yet we're having difficulties uh, incentivizing uh, people to build a housing that would uh, lower the cost of rentals and lower the cost of housing. Uh, there's going to be another housing crisis in five years at this point. That's what I'm hearing from people in the, in the, in the rental world, in the developer world, is that there's not enough in the pipeline because our city is just not incentivizing um, building of low-cost housing. Uh, there's so much red tape that it makes it difficult here. And, uh, and, and same thing with businesses. You know, there's no Fortune 500 company that's in Portland because there's no incentivizing on City Hall to bring those, uh, that growth energy to Portland, uh, that, that uh, energy of entrepreneurship and, and that ability to hire people at a, at a good wage. Um, and so what I just bring to the table here is that ability to work across different groups. You know, one is, you know, being an immigrant, you learn about hard times. And my family went through very hard times. And you realize that if you've seen, um, you know, if you've seen hardships, if you've been poor, if you worry about buying food um, on, on a weekly basis, you learn about pragmatic solutions rather than living um, uh, 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 according to just philosophies. And, and so we have to have that big vision of Portland of uh, the arts community, the music, uh, bringing people here who are unique, uh, keeping that weird Portland vibe, uh, making sure that we have a green society, that we're, we encourage biking across Portland, all these wonderful things that certainly brought me here. But we also need to be practical about how we get that done so that uh, we don't have the highest um, uh, accident rate resulting in fatalities, uh, car fatalities in 30 years in Portland that we keep our um, streets uh, lit up so that we don't have accidents with bikers on the streets and pedestrians on the streets. Those are practical solutions to the to the vision of having a green city and a bikeable and a walkable city. And, and that's what my, my campaign is. It's practical solutions. It's bringing people together, uh, people from the east side, the west side, the north, the south, businesses, employees, um, everybody keeps saying that they all want the same thing, a clean, livable city where they're able to get good jobs and their kids can be safe. Um, and that, that's, we can do that. We, we have good people here in Portland. We have a lot of tax money. We can get that done if we just plan for it. 
you're talking about bringing Fortune 500 companies to to Portland. I guess I'm always surprised by the companies that we do have in town, or or at least nearby, right? Nike and Adidas and um, you know IBM. Some of these companies, right, where where it's they're quite big, but so I'm I'm, wor- I'm wondering more about how you would incentivize, how you would bring more Fortune 500 companies to Portland um, without at the same time jeopardizing Portland's uniqueness or, or turning it into sort of, um, you know, aspects of, of Seattle that Portlanders maybe don't really care for like that, that's uh, paving over of what makes Portland a pretty unique city. So I wonder what, what, what do you think, how you would do that, uh, not only bringing those companies, but making sure that they are able to, to come into Portland seamlessly, or at least without disrupting the, the culture too much. Yeah, and, and we're all here because we love the culture, right? Um, you know, that we're all in our relative neighborhoods, whether you're living in the East or the West, because we love the cultures of that neighborhood and the walkability and the parks, you know, and, and the shops and the restaurants and the venues. That's exactly the big question. How do we preserve what makes Portland wonderful while at the same time making sure that Portland is able to meet the challenges of the future? And so when I say Fortune 500 companies, I just use that as an example. It's not that my goal in my campaign or in City Hall will be to you know, bring Amazon here or something along those lines, but we have to create an environment where you know, businesses can flourish, whether that's a small business, a medium-sized business, or a large business. Um, what we're bringing to Portland is, um, uh, uh, what, what, what's needed in Portland is uh, stability where people can form a company and ensure that that company has the fundamentals of success. So to give you an example of what I mean by that, um, I, I, not, not two hours ago, I had a conversation with a business owner in inner, inner East Side, a business that's recently expanded from Portland um, to the East Coast, as well as to California, very much a, a growing and thriving business. And this business owner said that in the last six months, um, she and her staff have been threatened four times by, by individuals that the crime is, is escalating and the city is not able to do anything about it. And so what does a business owner do in situations like that where they have a hard time uh, knowing what the future holds? And more than that, when they have a hard time ensuring the safety of their employees, well, this business owner has decided to move um, her business outside of the city. That is not what we need for Portlanders. This is a, a small business that grew into a big business. It's a green business. It's, it's now in, uh, according to her, at least recently, now four different cities, major metropolitan areas, but it started right here in Portland. And the sadness of the situation is that it is moving away from the place where it started because um, she, she couldn't vouch for the safety of her employees. And so it's, it's the basics, it's the fundamentals, you know, let's, let's make sure that people are safe. If something happens and someone is unfortunately needing to call 911, let's make sure that there's a response. Let's make sure that the response is appropriate. If it's uh, mental health needs, you know, get Portland street response or something else that's uh, 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 necessary for that kind of call, but also let's make sure that we have everything in place that people feel safe and that they want to work here and live here and, and raise their families here. I don't want to uh, mischaracterize your your position on it uh, on on sort of revitalizing business in Portland, but it sounds like, at least to me, that it's mostly centered around just uh, making sure that the city is safer. Or is is there anything beyond safety to to revitalizing Portland's small businesses and business community generally? 
Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Uh, that's just one example that I gave you of the conversation I had earlier. So exactly. Um, one of the, I think, very necessities of, of revitalizing uh, business in Portland, making it better than ever was before, is uh, I think this is closer um, to the, the heart of this podcast, is, is the music industry. Uh, very much it was heard during this pandemic. Uh, and the people involved in the music industry went to City Hall and they said, we need your help and, and short-term funding so we can just get by. And uh, speaking with some of these individuals, I, I surprisingly, I, I thought it would be an easy sell, but they were told no. They were told no, uh, that uh, if, if they failed, somebody else would come by and buy up their business or start a new business. But our city did not work with um, those businesses in order to make sure that they were able to withstand the pandemic and be there on the other side. Uh, people, we need people to come here to Portland. We need people to enjoy Portland, to visit, to live, uh, conventions and all these other things that we're hoping will come back at some point in time. All those things that people um, put Portland on the map in some cases, you know, for, for good or bad. I know there's different views on that, but, um, you know, and part of that is our city hall is not willing to build bridges to uh, uh, to different groups that they may not be already aligned with. And so uh, the difficulties that we're having in city hall, one of the difficulties we're having in city hall is, is a divisive nature of our political discourse. People are not working together. City commissioners and the mayor are not working together. Bureaus are not working together. You hear a lot about siloing effect. And so part of that establishing, once again, that foundation for future growth that lifts all everybody up together is um, building those bridges, you know, making sure that the unions are involved so everybody has a living wage, making sure that we reach out to um, the neighborhood associations and people live in the area so, you know, they are able to retain the unique nature of um, their neighborhoods and where they live. And yes, also making sure that we reach out to businesses and know what their needs are. And if it's something that we can help them with temporarily or otherwise, we need to give that life support from time to time instead of um, living by ideology and choosing who wins and who loses in uh, you know, business or life. So just to follow up on, on what that might look like in, in practice, you, you talk about a, a divisive climate, you know, there was an initiative to create Portland Street Response that you had a unanimous vote to to be expanded. Do you support the program, and and if so, like what's your vision for the the future of it? Yeah, yeah, I, I do support the program very much. Uh, I'm uh, I, until very recently, I was on a committee called the Portland Committee on Community Engaged Policing, and so initially, when Street Roots proposed having Portland Street Response, and this is on their website, the whole history of that. Um, uh, the mayor Wheeler, uh, uh, was able to put $500,000 in the budget for a Portland street response. And, uh, uh, the organization I was in, we actually voted a recommendation to the mayor to expand, uh, Portland street response as part of the money that they were taking away from the police bureau. And, um, and, and so I think it's very much necessary that we don't have a, you know, a cookie cutter approach to how we deal with any kind of crisis in our streets. It's not always necessary to have an armed police officer respond to some of these what, mental health, drug addiction issues, perhaps, that there's a, a better way of, 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 of working with those individuals and helping them connect with services. So I, I was very much for Portland Street response. What I saw, however, was a failure of how that money was utilized. And this is, again, you know, have that big vision. Yes, Portland Street response is, is a big vision. Cahoots in Portland um, 
uh, had a $2 million budget and they answered 15,000 calls uh, a year. They had three vans or have three vans and they work around the clock 24 seven. Portland Street response here in Portland, once it went to the fire bureau and was under my opponent's management, had a for one year, a $5 million budget. And with that $5 million budget, they were able to buy one van. They were able to hire three employees and they worked bankers hours, nine to five, or I believe 10 to six in one neighborhood, Monday through Friday, and only answer two to four calls a day. So here we have the failure, once again, of our uh, government. We have two and a half times more money as cahoots in, in Eugene, and yet we have one third of the actual resources and one third of the actual uh, performance of, uh, of cahoots in Eugene. So there was a failure there. I'm all for expanding Portland Street Response. I think it's necessary. I actually uh, uh, recommended to the mayor that they hire uh, unarmed police officers who's called public safety support specialists. They're not officers, they're just individuals that will respond to other low level offenses where you don't need to have a gun to do it. And, and that made it to the budget this last time around. They're gonna hire about another hundred of those individuals. And, and once again, you know, uh, not a cookie cutter approach to how we handle uh, public safety is, is and, and that's, I think, better for the future of Portland. Just a quick follow up on Portland Street response. You talked about being open to a, a few different options and avenues that could go. Are, is one of those options you're considering potentially privatizing that or outsourcing it to a corporation? Oh, no, no, I, I wouldn't privatize it. So in uh, Eugene, uh, there's a nonprofit that handled it, and they were actually involved in um, other things, working with the homeless community. So they were already uh, had some capabilities in that area uh, before they took on that. Um, I don't think it should be privatized. I don't think it should be a, definitely not a for-profit sort of um, entity. Um, what, I, what I do think is we need to evaluate how to best serve the community. Um, I, I think with additional funding in the Fire Bureau, uh, this has a good chance of success if, if it's overseen well, if it gets that funding, and if the priorities are set correctly by our city council. Um, but, but we have a lot of people living in our streets. We have a lot of people suffering in our streets. We had 126 deaths last year um, from people living in our streets. Half of those were overdoses. And so we want to make sure that the services we provide are the best services. And if, uh, you know, street response or whoever, you know, uh, maybe has a better idea for how this should run, I'm all open to that because it's about results, not about, you know, the, the, uh, the, 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 how it looks to outsiders, but what kind of results it actually gets. So I wonder what your plan is to, to, uh, you know, address homelessness and uh, what kind of accountability measures you, you think go, go alongside that, alongside your, plan for homelessness? Yeah, Daniel, excellent question. I'm glad you said accountability because that's that's what we're lacking right now. Um, I, I, people will be listening to this uh, podcast a little bit later, but uh, an article came out recently uh, where or the Oregonian uh, interviewed 300 people who were homeless it, it, with street groups, actually. It was uh, some street groups, people that were helping. And uh, of those 300 individuals who were living in our streets, 66% said that they had never been contacted by an outreach worker about housing or other services. So two thirds had never been contacted by anybody. Of those one third that had been contacted by somebody, 75% said that there was no follow-up. So they might've wanted housing or they might've wanted food help or rental assistance, uh, but no one, 75% uh, of them never heard back. That accountability piece is, is very important. Um, if you go on the Joint Office of Homeless uh, Services website, 
you can't tell what's being successful and what's being a failure. In a big city like Portland, we will have successes. We will have uh, some, some programs that are working. We'll also have some programs that are not. And so we need to know because we need to know how our money is spent. What we're seeing right now is uh, doubling down, tripling down, quadrupling down on things that unfortunately too often are not working here in Portland. And we need to figure out what's working and what's not. And then we need to get people the services that they need. Um, if, uh, yeah, let me just say, if I, if I was a psychiatrist and you brought me uh, your, your sister and said, my sister has a, a drug addiction problem. And my response would be like, oh, uh, your sister is better off living in a tent on a street uh, where she can easily buy drugs and probably around other people that are using drugs. You, you'd fire me. If I was a doctor and you brought your brother to me and you said, oh, my brother has um, uh, psychosis uh, and, and has uh, mental health uh, difficulties. And I said, well, deal with those psychoses by living in a tent in the street. Uh, you would probably sue me for mal malpractice. But that's exactly what we're doing right now. Uh, we're letting people live on street corners from east to west. You can't provide services to individuals around um, all of Portland living in all streets as they move around as well. Uh, we need to provide services. We need to have those services available, but we need to make sure that um, we we uh, uh, we need to ensure that individuals living in our streets uh, uh, have access to those services and able to avail themselves of those services. And that's just not happening right now. Um, part of that is uh, you know bringing in short-term housing as well as long-term housing. Uh, you know, you hear the housing first policy, and I think that's that's wonderful, but it's not going to be here in Portland until about 2030. And, and that's just dealing with the amount of people we have right now. And so we need to all hands on board at this point in time. You know, I, I have a friend who now has a, a shelter in a church parking lot that they started. Uh, we need to have safe rest villages. We need to have more shelter space. We need to get people to a place of stability first where they can get services, housing services, mental health services, drug addiction services, the whole panoply, even getting um, uh, uh even getting insurance is difficult for some individuals. And once they're in a place of stability, we can help them with that. And so number one is get people to a state of stability and then follow up, follow up, follow up, follow up until we're able to get them the services that they need. Just to follow up on that, you talk about short-term housing and, and you know shelter starting up. We've, I think everyone who lives in Portland has seen at least one or two shelters that have popped up in the past few years. But Obviously, we need more. And so that naturally becomes a question of where are these shelters going to go? And, and related to that, right, how do you encourage people who don't necessarily want to go to a shelter or want to go to this sort of short-term housing? Um, how do you encourage them to get there? So where do you put them and how do you get people in there? The, those are the tough questions, Daniel. Um, and I'm glad we're having this conversation because these are the questions that we need to discuss and are not being discussed right now. Um, what, what you hear uh, a lot from service providers is uh, a term called chronic homelessness. Sometimes um, it's called uh, a service resistance. And uh, based on the last point in time count, uh, for unsheltered um, chronic homeless people, the ones that generally you see living on the streets and tents, the average amount of time they've been unsheltered is about four years. So there's a, a disconnect with individuals uh, who, for whatever reason, um, are living in the streets for a long time, perhaps longer than it would take to be on a wait list for housing, longer than it would take to be on a wait list for mental health or drug addiction services uh, or other services that are being provided. And that, that is the crux that, of the matter that we're dealing with. 
the system is broken right now because we're not dealing with the system. We're treating those individuals as if one day they'll wake up and say, okay, I'm ready to move into an apartment. I'm ready to go into, you know, some sort of drug addiction, rehab services, visit counseling, whatever it might be. And, and we're not seeing that. So how do we make that link? And those are the tough questions. Is it through service providers? Is it through um, individuals reaching out in our neighborhoods? Um, you know, I and, and other friends, we go to areas and we visit homeless people and we try to link in the services. And it's difficult because you can't even online tell which shelters are available, how much space is available. But in any case, um, is, it, is it up to neighborhood associations to see how they can reach out or, or uh, congregations, churches, uh, whatever that might look like? Um, is, is it something that we need to like uh, get Portland Street response to be involved with? Um, and, and is it something that we need a, a police response in case there's violence or something else? Those are the tough questions. I'm not saying that one answer is right. There's probably a permutation of all those things. Um, but what we're doing right now by ignoring it is, is not, not helping individuals live in our streets. Um, we're, we're condemning them of a life to suffering where a lot of them are unfortunately dying. So that's that's the conversation that needs to happen, and that's a conversation that unfortunately we're not having. Um, I, I don't know how long this podcast is. I mean, we can go down this road for a long time and the pros and cons to all those approaches. But the point is, there have been successes before in other cities, other cities with a very high cost of living as well, and those cities have done a combination of those efforts, and and that's where we're seeing the successes, where you know different individuals are working together to make sure that people who um, may not be in a circumstance where they can help themselves are, are getting that help. I understand these are difficult questions. There's a lot to consider when considering where to where to put people who are experiencing houselessness and how to get them there. A lot of the frustration I hear in, in people around me is uh, when it comes to houselessness and how it's impacting them is, hey, like, you know, this is, I, I just don't feel like this, this camp should be here or like the, this specific camp is, is causing these issues like it does it, it seems like you would need to essentially confront this problem on, on a camp by camp basis I don't, I don't quite see like a, a way around that so uh, putting aside for a second that, that difficult question of where do we actually put these people how do you decide whether a camp needs to to be relocated and, and go or for lack of a better term swept as I think folks refer to it well, that's that's one thing I'm not an expert in. Unfortunately, I, I know that there's all these criteria that the Joint Office of Homeless Services and the uh, 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 IRP, the the people that actually go in and clean up the camps, um, how they rate them. You know whether there's uh, uh, a question about uh, safety to individuals, public health safety uh, within that campsite, whether um, circumstances are such that there's uh, a violation of uh, not being able to use the sidewalks in that area or some other things um, that not, not being uh, working in that field. I don't know what, what the answer is. All I know is, you know, you have to trust your eyes. Sometimes you go out there and you see people that uh, whose lives are just falling apart. And it's not about moving the camps. It's about, once again, I think connecting people to services because way before a camp is actually moved, there's outreach workers that come there and they uh, try to offer services to individuals. And so moving um, oftentimes is a thing of last resort. Uh, once again, public health hazard, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, perhaps a safety issue. But, um, but yeah, that's uh, how do we get, this is to the last question. How do we get individuals um, off the streets and get them to the services that they need? 
um, in, in a humanitarian way, in a way that's humanitarian, both to the individuals living in the streets and the neighborhoods in which they reside. Um, and that's, that's the conversation that we need to have. And that's a conversation that I want to openly have with, with people once I'm in office. Um, you know, my, my, my take is you can't, um, you, you can't sit behind closed doors in city hall and make these decisions without public input. I, I want to go to where people are meeting, um, whether it's neighborhood associations, whether it's uh, uh, places of worship, um, online, offline, um, you know, next door, wherever people might meet. And, and get their take on what their needs are and form an opinion based on that alongside with the service providers, um, but have that frank conversation of the pros and cons to that. Um, certainly we can't have uh, uh, individuals that are, you know, sometimes uh, uh, whether due to drugs or mental health illness suffering and, and affecting um, people in the area, we need to be able to uh, get those individuals help and, and right now, what we're seeing is individuals that um, are not ready for that help are just being moved along. And, and that's not the right answer either. Just to clarify, when you were talking about individuals who are moved along, is that like a, you know, is that when the police step in and say, you know, the camp is clear and they've, is, is that what you're referring to? Like just with, with moving folks along or is there... Another. That's what I'm referring to. I don't know if the police yeah. actually go out there, but Hucker, the agency uh, in Portland of the Joint Office of Homeless Services that cleans up camps, they post a notice, they send social workers out there and try to get assistance. And if things still remain the same, then they go in and, and uh, clean up the camp uh, with contractors that you know pick up stuff and then put it into storage and things like that. Uh, and so what, what you're seeing an awful lot is um, uh, uh, just this inability to um, get people into the systems that they need. Uh, there was a story about um, Laurelhurst Park, for instance, where there was a fairly large encampment for a long time, which was ignored by the city for quite a while. And, um, and, and, and uh, there, were, there were guns in the area from what people were saying. Social workers were concerned about going there because of, they had seen some guns um, and, and various other things, drug dealing in the park. Um, and, and of course, people that needed some help. And so what the city did was they went out there and they offered um, services to them. They offered, first of all, shelters and eight individuals who were obviously ready to go into a shelter and have some stability in a, what the shelter would provide. Um, out of 60 people that were camping there, um, eight individuals agreed to go to a shelter. And then the city said, well, okay, if you don't want to go to a shelter, we have motels. We'll give you vouchers where you can stay at a at a motel, as I understand it, those motels actually provide food as well. Uh, I think the city pays something like $100 a night to those hotels, the ones that at least the city hasn't tried to buy um, in order to uh, shelter these individuals. And out of the people that were left, 16 people uh, chose those vouchers to be in a motel. Um, and the remainder, for whatever reason, uh, were moved by the city. You know, the, the Hucker came in and, and, and moved those individuals. That's, that's where we have to do better. Why were those other individuals um, uh, uh, unable to accept those previous offers? 
And how can we make it so those individuals feel comfortable? I mean, that might be more outreach earlier on so that those individuals build established relationships with people that are trying to support them. So whatever their concerns might be about the new lifestyle can be helped out. Um, building the bonds, building relationships over time, which we're not doing. Um, one of those things is wraparound services. So if those people do go to places, there's other individuals that will help them along the road so they're not there by themselves. Um, there's options, but we're seeing right now, it's either, you know, uh, take one of the options that's available to you or, or move elsewhere. And that's, that's not good for those individuals. That's not good for those, uh, the, the neighbors that are housed in that area, because all they're seeing is a back and forth as people are being, being moved around. And that's, that's the one thing where we're not having an open conversation. And I'm willing to have that open conversation with you, Peter, with you, Daniel. Um, that's the impediment we're seeing right now from a lot of people that I'm talking to is um, uh, nobody wants people to be moved around Portland. That, that doesn't help Portlanders. That doesn't help those individuals on the streets. But what are the um, alternatives to that? And how do we make sure that we put an end to that practice? I'm curious because you talk about wanting to have an open conversation about, about these things. It seems, it seems like, and I could be wrong with this, but it seems like Joanne is maybe one of the few people who is willing to have an open conversation about, about sweeps and, and homeless reform in, in sort of a more community-based approach. If you get in as, as city commissioner, uh, how do you see yourself as being able to, uh, you know, have an open discussion with the other uh, city uh, commissioners who maybe aren't as interested as ta in talking about these things? You know, how do you how do you broach that with them, and how do you actually get them to to come to the table and and, and listen to the community, listen to people on the ground? Yeah, and and so I'll push back on that a little bit. I don't I don't think Joanne is listening. Um, I really don't. Uh, you know, uh, a, a while back, ODOT put a bunch of boulders on next to four or five so that people can't camp in that area um, because it was hazardous to be on a freeway on ramp. And Joanne was out there protesting the boulders. Well, fast forward now, and uh, there's a lot of homeless people that died last year, and um, at least one of them was because somebody was on an off-ramp and there was a tent and this person was, uh, according to the news, possibly uh, inebriated and ran into that tent and then a homeless individual died. Um, and so you have, you know, ODOT trying to uh, have a solution to the life safety issues of living next to a freeway. Um, and, and Joanne was against that. Now she's in charge of PBOT, uh, the Portland Bureau of Transportation, and people are dying who are homeless because they're in, in high traffic areas. Uh, and then to, to sort of put the icing in the cake there, as far as um, the, the uh, uh, policies that aren't working, when those individuals were moved from Laurelhurst Park that I just mentioned recently, uh, Joanne, as part of her role with the Parks Bureau, put in um, uh, uh, seating in those areas, park benches, so those people couldn't move back to those areas. So you have her protesting boulders on the one hand where people are living next to freeways and possibly being run over, at the same time putting up park benches in other areas uh, so that homeless people can't go there. I'm not sure that's listening to the community. I think that's you know, going wherever the wind blows. And so uh, in, in, with, with what I, how I work with things is I'm willing to listen to people that live both on the streets and their house neighbors. 
Uh, I myself am on a neighborhood association board. I think it's very important to know what's happening in your neighborhood and help out from where you can, from how you can. I think you listen to those individuals and see what they need. A lot of people want to help uh, homeless individuals in the street. It's not all NIMBYism. Um, a lot of people are willing to open up areas next to them, um, are willing as long as uh, uh, safety is ensured and as long as they know that there are results. Uh, the fr frustration right now is uh, compassion fatigue. People in Portland have a lot of compassion. It's one of the reasons that I moved here. It's a lot of the reasons why people love this area. And, and yet they're seeing that, you know, their tax money, their efforts are not getting results. And so what we need for results is a clear plan as to what to do and not this sort of like from one year to the next changing things, depending on, you know, the political wins. You talk about listening to folks. Um, when it comes to what, how our police should be interacting in the community, I, I, I've heard of First, some divergent things over the last few years. On, on the one hand, we had mass uh, demonstrations and, and action in, in 2020, especially around how frustrations towards the police and how they should be reformed. Um, that you know are still still going on to, to this day. I mean, like that that uh, we're still seeing the signs of it with the recent news of that police officer training deck having that uh, meme of that's titled the. I think it's called the all night prayer. Uh, so, so we have that, we have that frustration and skepticism towards the police. And we all, I also hear a lot of uncertainty. A, a lot of folks are concerned about gun violence and that's a really scary, real thing. And then there's worry that we're maybe under policed by, by some folks. How do, you, how do you listen, but also balance those kind of diametrically opposed views in, in some cases? Like how do, you, how do you help find the solution that makes sense? You know, I, I always believe there's a third way, you know, there's uh, one way, there's a second way, and they might be diametrically opposed, but then there's common ground. And, and you know, being, being a lawyer, being a judge uh, in, my, in my private life, at least, as well as, you know, in my personal life, uh, being a part of, you know, very varied communities, uh, you have to find that common ground between um, different people. And I believe almost always there's some sort of common ground. I think the last election was pretty instructive. Uh, the vast majority of Portlanders voted for a community oversight agency. Um, you know, unfortunately, that's not even off. Uh, uh, that's not even been created yet. There's a committee that's looking at how that oversight agency will look. But nonetheless, the Portlanders voted to have a police oversight agency, community based, with you know quite a bit of funding to do its job as well. At the same time. Um, they, they voted in Mingus Maps, who was endorsed by the Portland uh, Police Association, who has since been very pragmatic about the need uh, to ensure that there's an adequate um, proactive policing so we have the gun violence actually addressed in a, in a way that's uh, viable and working. So I don't think that there's, uh, uh, those views are diametrically opposed. We need to have uh, police with the best training in the country. We need to have police that have good community oversight. We need to improve the culture in the police so that the people that are promoted, the people that are in charge are the people that are also concerned about the community being, uh, having good relations with the community, getting input on policing. But we also have to have an adequate response so that when someone is in a crisis, when they call 911, someone is able to help. You know, I, I believe it needs to be uh, viewed from the lens of, of the victims. How can we help people that are being victimized? Every year, there's about a, in Portland, about a million 911 calls. 
Of those are about 600,000 are people that are calling for the police because they're afraid, because they're concerned, perhaps they're scared for their lives, perhaps they're in the midst of a crisis and, and are uh, worried about being hurt. And, uh, and we need to make sure that we're able to respond to that. Um, but we're, we have one of the highest 911, longest 911 response rates in, in Portland history. We definitely have the highest murder rate in the history of Portland. We have the most shootings in the history of Portland in one year and, and the most uh, uh, injuries, not, not just deaths, but the most injuries resulting from uh, shootings. And the crime is up all over, whether it's larceny or I, I believe kidnapping is up something like 100%. It's, uh, it's all over the place. And we need to make sure that, once again, well-trained, good oversight, um, make sure that everyone is accountable. If, if an officer does something wrong, we need to make sure that they're accountable and they get punished or removed or, or whatever the appropriate response to that is and, and make sure we can do that. So I, I, I'm on a committee called the Citizen Review Committee for about, I think over three years at this point, maybe close to four. And we hear complaints against the police bureau. So th this is going to be a bit of a shocker here, the story I'm about to tell. But um, when Joanne Hardesty was elected, uh, one of the first things we did in, as a citizen review committee is we went to all the commissioners, including Joanne Hardesty, and we said um, the standard of review for how we're able to determine whether an officer needs to be disciplined is too high. Legally, it gives a lot of deference to uh, the police and uh, their, uh, their managers. Um, if you want to change the system right now, uh, just a vote on city council, lower that standard from a, a reasonable person standard to a preponderance of the evidence standard. Uh, legal talk there for anybody that's a lawyer, but basically it makes it easier to, um, uh, uh, to decide whether someone acted inappropriately. Um, we went to Joanne's office, me and another individual on the citizen review committee and, and asked for this and, and nothing happened, silence. And that would have been an instant fix right there to hold people more accountable because we need accountability. Everybody knows that. Nobody wants to see that, that slide, which, uh, which is derogatory. No one wants to see uh, individuals or know that the police are abusing people. And, and you know, let's be honest, there are bad police officers out there and we need to address it. But there's a lot of good police officers that are putting their lives on the line and protecting people as well. On that citizen review committee, I've, I've uh, also get to review when they use uh, force against individuals. And sometimes they go into, the, into situations that are horrific, uh, people trying to kill one another, those sort of situations. I can't do that. I, I don't know many people that can, but there's good officers that are out there saving lives. And we need to make sure that those good officers have a culture in which they can thrive. And we need to make sure the bad officers have a culture where they're fired. And, and that, I think, is where the commonality is. We need to have enough officers to respond to the crimes and be proactive about it, be out there ensuring that, that there's a presence, that, there's, you know, that, that the crime is not being uh, committed. At the same time, make sure that they're accountable. If someone does something wrong, get them out of there. So on the subject of our city's role with the police and, and how much power they, they should have and do have, uh, we've talked to two other candidates for this race, Commissioner Hardesty and Renee Gonzalez, and they have, they, they both kind of share your, your skepticism for, for how the how city governance is currently working. They have, I think, pretty clear approaches uh, that, that are pretty different. Joanne Hardesty, in our interview with her, was, was very clear in saying that we, like there needs to be that the police have to have a remote reckoning. Like it's really on them. She put it on them and saying that they have to 
they have to really show that, that they are accountable and show that they can stick to their budget and show that they, they are being transparent. Renee, on the other hand, um, had, had a very different, different outlook. He says he feels the police need a cheerleader and they need somebody to really be in their corner and that there's just not enough appreciation they, they for They really them. use the term cheerleader? Is that what he said? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, right. I, I, I believe, yeah, yeah. You look back, it's, it's all on our, our website. I believe he did use the word cheerleader. He did, he but did. Do you feel like we're already at one of those extremes right now or are we in the middle of those two things? Because they, they both feel like we should be going and you know, more in one, one direction. And it, uh, are, are you, are you in the middle of that? And, and how has that changed? Yeah. I, you know, I, I wouldn't say I'm a cheerleader for the police, but I, I do think we need enough uh, good officers to do the job that they're paid to do um, that the people need that people are asking for it. There's too many stories of people out there and we need to make sure we address the, those individuals. Um, at the same time, you, you have to be skeptical. I mean, um, you know, the number of the, the third highest rate of deaths in the United States is medical malpractice. Um, people dying in the hospitals because of procedures that were unnecessary or, or drugs that were given inadvertently or what have you. The third highest deaths. We, we don't fix that by uh, defunding hospitals. We fix that by having malpractice where people that are bad doctors get fired. And we fix that by having the best training and the best schools for our doctors to make sure that they do well. And so, yeah, there's a dichotomy there. And I, I would never uh, uh, speak for Renee because I'm, I'm not very familiar with his position, but I, I know Joanne's position. You know, she said the police started their own fires downtown. There, there's a lot of um, uh, uh, belief that the police are, are, are acting in, uh, with malice in everything that they do. What we need to do, once again, is, is create a culture where good police officers that are trying to help their communities are, are doing their job well. You know, that's there's no question about that. And uh, I don't know whether that needs a cheerleader or what have you. I think there's a lot of good people wanting to, um, you know, do the best they can out there. A lot of people, I think, go into that field because they want to help people, not because they want to have a gun and a shield and walk around in a uniform or whatever um, or drive faster. I, I don't know. But like, I think a lot of people actually want to help individuals. I firmly believe in, in the good nature of human beings, whether they're wearing a uniform or, um, or, or whether they're in an office in a suit or, or whether they're you know, working in any other kind of field, everybody wants, for the most part, wants to do well. We just have to make sure that when somebody is not, uh, doesn't have the best intentions that they're identified. And I think, yeah, that the framework is out there um, on the citizen review committee, uh, certainly worked with uh, police that um, you know, we're not uh, policy compliant. And we brought that to the attention of the police chief and the mayor. Um, as, as a lawyer and as a judge, I, I follow the standard as it's set before us. Um, so that, you know, kind of uh, to, to use a mixed metaphor here, handcuffs us in some ways as to what we can do with the police. Um, but uh, we need to have that oversight. So on the one hand, um, you have Joanne, who is uh, blaming the police for a lot of our ills. And, and uh, from time to time, it's true. Um, and then um, on the other side, you know, the, I don't know whether it's a laissez-faire attitude, but you have to take into account the history of policing in Portland. So I'm really curious about your path forward and differentiating that from Renee's path forward. I know you just said you're, you're not super familiar with Renee's uh, positions, but at least from where I sit, it's, it's like you, you both are sort of moderate, uh, center-left leaning. That's, that's what I can gather, at least from both of you, whereas Joanne is a lot more left um, that, than both of you. So I wonder you know, if you could differentiate from what you know of, of Renee's policies, how you could di differentiate yourself for people out there who are trying to see what you're trying to understand what the difference is between you 
And then if there really isn't too much of a difference or not, not one that you know of, are you concerned about splitting the moderate vote or, or what that might do um, if your policies are, are quite similar? Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't buy into quite that center left and far left and all that kind of stuff. I think most people are, you know, just want results, you know, at the end of the day. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I'd say I'm a centrist radical. I, I have a big vision of how I want things to work. I think we can have um, equity in our policing. We can have uh, accountability in our policing. Um, we can have services provided by uh, non-police officers that are more relevant to the needs of the community. Uh, we can have trust. We can rebuild that trust between the, the institutions of the city and, and the people in the city. We just have to want to build that trust instead of constantly sowing discord. And so with respect to, uh, that's, that's how I differ from Joanne. She'll, she'll say that um, you know, the police are uh, nefarious in, in, in everything that they do. Uh, and not putting words in their mouth, but, you know, uh, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying that these are people, these are people who many of whom have good intentions. We just want to make sure that they have the resources and the training to be able to help people out there. Um, how I differentiate from uh, Renee, um, honestly, I, I have not heard Renee speak on this, so I can't say for sure. What I can say is um, I've had the experience that Renee does not um, I've been working in this area for several years now, whether it's been on the Portland Committee and Community Engaged Policing. So when we had um, the protests and yes, some of the riots downtown, we invited those individuals to speak with us so we could understand what their needs were, what they were asking for, whether it's defunding. If defunding, where does the money go? If it's abolishing, who is it that would uh, help individuals that are being harmed? Um, these are conversations that we've had for, we had for months in, in forums. I think one of them, we almost had 500 people, smaller forums, individual forums, and it continued after that and made recommendations to address those needs. I've been in a, uh, and currently am in a committee that hears complaints against the police bureau. So I know what's involved over there. Um, I've tried to bridge those, com uh, those communities. If you ask anybody that I've worked with, whether on those committees, whether on the police side, whether on the government side, or the community members that were um, involved, um, they will tell you that I have been fair to everybody, that I have listened and I have tried to make the right decision based again on, on the criteria that we had before us. And, and too often, we, we just don't have people listening. They, they make judgments based on ideology rather than understanding uh, and listening to what people are saying. So uh, I've, I've been there, I've done it, I've worked on these. And once again, I recommended uh, uh, additional public safety support specialists, which city council voted unanimously to accept. First, the mayor accepted it. And then in the last two budgets, they kept upping it up. I've worked with other organizations that have uh, police oversight, including the um, uh, Training Advisory Council and various other groups that um, work with the police and making sure that they're the best trained and held accountable. And, and, and Renee, uh, whatever his policy may be, and once again, I, I'm not 100% sure, but it sounds like he's for police, but um, you know, I, I think he's, he's coming new to the table and he has a steep learning curve. Can you tell us a little bit about who is supporting you in your campaign? And also if people, like what they're hearing and they want to support you, where can they find you? What, what, can, what can they do? Yeah, I appreciate it. So uh, everybody that's listening to this, I, I, I hope your, uh, uh, your interest is piqued. I, I hope you like what you hear. And if you want to learn more information, please come to uh, www.votevadim.com. That's V-A-D as in David, I-M as in Mark. 
um, difficult last name uh, and then a difficult first name as well. So uh, that'll, that's my campaign website. Uh, there's uh, information about my campaign there. Um, we're, on February 1st, we're going to release a list of uh, my supporters. That list is going to be, I think, very surprising to a lot of people. Uh, it's across a broad swath of the community. As I mentioned earlier, uh, I'm trying to really build a coalition here, uh, in fact, as well as in, in theory. I've been meeting with a lot of individuals. Some of whom are, are natural supporters to what I've been discussing today, it's sort of that practical, pragmatic solution and that vision long term, but also building the steps to that uh, vision. Uh, but also people that honestly uh, have been Joanne supporters and, and um, question a lot of the things that I'm saying. And I, I'm trying to bring everyone to the table. If I if I make sense, I hope people will uh, come in and endorse me and support. Um, and and I that the the list that you'll see of endorsements is going to be pretty telling about the the breadth of that the breadth of that. Um, you know, I, I've been to Lentz. I, I hear uh, the difficulties they've had out there, uh, both with crime and and other issues in that area, homelessness, and how they're trying to deal with it. Um, I've, I've also been to Old Town you know, on the west side and, and talked to individuals there that are working um, to, to make things better for Portland. And um, that's, that's one of the things that is really encouraging. So many people are out there are willing to roll up their sleeves and help. And, and that's what kind of keeps my campaign going. That's what wakes me up in the morning and makes me want to talk to you, Peter, and you, Daniel, and, and other individuals uh, I, I think if you all knew the solutions, you'd be telling us what the solutions are, and maybe you do, and I'm willing to listen uh, on my website. My email address is there. Please let me know if uh, you, you think any of my talking points can improve, and, and likewise for anybody listening to this. Uh, if, if you, if you want to help, and I know you do, if you have uh, an idea, and I know you do, and you want to work with me down the road, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to talk with you, I'm willing to hear you, and I'm willing to work with you. Um, come by, email me, visit me, and and let's let's make this happen. Well, Vadim, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, and I appreciate your service towards our city with everything you've been involved with. Hey, thanks a lot, and and thank you for your time as well. I look forward to uh, uh, listening to myself online and seeing how I come off. Take care, guys. I appreciate it. <laughs>